Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. Today, I have a guest, a colleague and old friend um, who is an expert on leadership and organizational studies. In fact, he's a professor at the University of Sussex Business School. Dr. Dennis Turish and I go back many years. I've had the, the, the opportunity to interview several times Dennis, but um, uh, I'm fascinated by your research and I follow your work. Um, for my listeners who may not know of you, I just would like to say that you, um, you came to this particular interest in the dysfunctional and dark side of leadership, probably from growing up in Northern Ireland at a time of great conflict between the two main communities. Uh, you also uh, led, fed into a book that you wrote, The Dark Side of Transformational Leadership, A Critical Perspective, published by Rutledge in 2013. Um, I do wanna cite the original book that I read of yours uh, that uh, is called On the Edge, Political Cults Right and Left. And even though it's written in 2000, I still think it has a lot of relevance. And I like that you cover left-wing cults and right-wing cults, because like myself, you are concerned about authoritarian uh, mind control groups, uh, undue influence groups. Um, what else do I want to say? So I invited you to do this one, Dennis, because of your research into Elizabeth Holmes, the infamous CEO of the biotech firm Theranos, who uh, was sentenced to 11 years in jail for fraud. And uh, this woman started this corporation at 19, age 19 in 2003, managed to raise $700 million in, in startup capital, or the valuation of Theranos at one point, I think you said was $10 billion, and it went bankrupt in 2018. And, and uh, yeah, she's going to jail, and so is her co-conspirator, co uh, Ramesh Balwani, I believe is his name. Um, and as you know, I did my doctoral dissertation in the area of organizational change and development, looking at organizations and how do we tell the difference between ethical ones and unethical ones. And your, your uh, published journal article on Theranos is, is very interesting and important. So with that introduction, Dr. Dennis Turish, please tell us about, uh, about um, Theranos, Elizabeth Holm, and anything else you'd like to say. Mm. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Steve. And uh, you mentioned the book on political cults, uh, which is now only available, I think, at an extortionate Kindle rate. So if anybody would like a free copy, send me an email, please, and I will send you a PDF of it. Great. But yes, I got very interested in Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes some time ago. And it reflects a concern I have that when people think about high-involvement organizations, unethical influence, dominating power relationships and so on, they tend to think of things like religious, extreme religious organizations, Mm -hmm. But yet, in my opinion, a very under-examined area where all these things also exist is the corporate world, where you have a tendency for people at the top to have far too much power and very often abuse it. 
There's an American and management scholar called Sidney Finkelstein, and he wrote a few years ago that being the CEO of a company these days is the nearest thing you can get to becoming king of your own country. And I thought that was very apt, very apt. Mm. So the thing about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos is that she uh, did build up this company. It had a significant number of employees. And one of the interesting things about it was that although she had no expertise whatsoever in the biotech field, she managed to recruit a board for the company that included many of the infamous and the great and the good of American society. Among the people who were members, for example, was Henry Kissinger Mm -hmm. and uh, the late George Shultz, another former Secretary of State. And the, none of the people on the board had any expertise at all, which, of course, was very handy for a leader who didn't really want any diligent oversight of her activities. And <clears throat> what also interested me was the techniques that she then employed inside Theranos to ensure that everybody stayed on message mm -hmm. and on script. So it was, in many respects, an archetypal cult-like environment. People worked extraordinarily long hours, 12, 14 hours a day. They were monitored intensively in what they did. There were security guards everywhere. There were security cameras everywhere. If anybody did speak up on voice of concern, they were instantly dismissed. And this became so common that in the gallows humor of employees, they were referred to as the disappeared, uh, which gives you an idea of the punitive mm. internal atmosphere that uh, prevailed. Mm -hmm. So there was uh, no toleration whatsoever of dissent. Mm -hmm. And another thing which I find very interesting about her approach is that she tried to clothe and disguise her manipulative techniques by putting forward a very noble-sounding corporate purpose. Her acclaim for her business was that she had invented technology which could take a small pinprick of blood from your thumb and almost instantly do around about 200 tests thereby opening up much more rapid diagnosis and treatment. And the claim was that this would revolutionize healthcare throughout the world. Uh, the catch, of course, was that this technology never really did exist. And right. uh, the various techniques were used to cover that up. But it was an interesting example of, of and we find this with all kinds of cult leaders, they, they say something which sounds very noble and inspiring, but behind it, there lies something else. <clears throat> and Holmes went so far as to that corporate meetings with her staff say things like that she was trying to build a religion, a movement that was like a religion. She claimed that they had to believe that this was the most important thing in the history of humanity. If they didn't believe this, they should get out and so on. Those are classic techniques and methods of extracting maximum commitment from people. Yes. And of course, there are also classic techniques for covering up very devious real aims and by disguising them with noble sounding ideals. Right, exactly. So the grandiose, uh, we're going to change the world, we're going to save people's lives and, and save money. And I just want to say the, the, the rule uh, with psychology of belief is people believe what they want to believe. Mm -hmm. So they have this attractive young whippersnapper. I think she was at Stanford when before she dropped out. She was at some mm -hmm. Ivy League college. Stanford. And she was and she was selling this idea very powerfully mm. and deceptively. I mean she could be very persuasive, 
And uh, this is, of course, one of the reasons why she managed to attract so many influential people onto her board. But some of the former employees, interestingly, they've also described their intense devotion and commitment to the corporate ideal. One of them actually used the expression that she totally drank the Kool-Aid, um, uh-huh. which is a reference that you will be very familiar with to the Jonestown events, where unfortunately people were persuaded or forced to imbibe poison in the, in the drink. Yeah. And in many respects, this is what was going on here. There was a toxic organizational practices that were going on, but the lovely sounding ideal disguised it. And it helped some people to persuade themselves to go along with all of this much longer than they might otherwise have done. Right. And she got rid of people who raised objections or concerns you write about in your article. Yeah, I mean, for example, at one stage, the organization's chief chief financial officer queried some of the claims that were being made. So he was sacked. And for the rest of its existence, the Ramos didn't have a chief financial officer. Hmm. Uh, and, and people were, you know, harassed. If they were suspected of becoming whistleblowers, they were followed by private investigators. Mm. They were hit with uh, legal threats that if they spoke up about what they thought was actually happening, they would be sued. Mm-hmm. All of this put enormous pressure on people. And um, interestingly, <clears throat> one of the main whistleblowers who eventually emerged was the grandson of George Schultz. Mm. And I think his parents had to remortgage their home to pay legal fees. The threat wow. had become so serious from Theranos at that stage. Now, ultimately, it was exposed in that there came a point where you have to put up or shut up. She had to actually show that this technology really existed. She couldn't do it any longer and was attracting much more critical scrutiny from uh, the SFC, from the media, and so on. So at that point, it all began to implode. But before that, it had done an enormous uh, amount of harm. And I think one of the one of the things that uh, maybe should have triggered more concern, but also it's a warning for other organizations of what to look out for is this, that she became much more grandiose than what she did. For example, when Theranos moved to a new headquarters, she built an office for herself modeled on the White House. Uh, bulletproof glass was put in the windows. She had a private jet. She had a private chef. She also appeared on the front cover of, for example, Fortune magazine, and various other uh, prestigious outlets. All of that's something that can encourage grandiosity, hubris, narcissism. And it seems to me that those were quite possibly evident in her case and might well be evident in sort of prototypical cult leaders more widely. Yeah, I, I, that's my take with my studies of cult leaders is they're not only narcissists, but they would be what uh, Eric Fromm called malignant narcissists. Mm. These are people who think they're above the law. They don't mind pathological lying. They can be threatening, harassing, as you were talking about PIs or threats of lawsuits. Um, So, but this, this is the predatory, you know, profile that people need to protect themselves from um, my good friend John Atak, who I think you know, who is an ex-Scientologist, wrote a book, Opening Our Minds, and he focused on educating people about these predatory uh, attributes. But well, I think one of the going. dangers more widely, of course, is that a lot of the media encourages us to idolize and idealize top business leaders. 
CEOs in particular, there's a tendency in the business media, for example, if an organization is successful, to attribute all of the credit for that to the CEO. Likewise, if it goes belly up, there's a tendency to attribute all the blame to the CEO. But this rather reinforces the tendency that many of us have to look up to CEOs as a guiding light, a visionary leader and the like. And it encourages CEOs to live up to that ideal in their own minds as well. Now, if you have a really wonderful person, that might be okay. But it does rather enable many um, uh, other individuals to get away with, in this particular case, fraud. But also milking the energies, the efforts, the idealism and the commitment of the employees Yes. For no real good ends, other than that they themselves were interested in becoming a billionaire. Yeah, and using you know stock options as the hook to stay committed, because if they leave, then they lose out on all of the goodies. If yeah, precisely, you know, if things well, one of the little characteristics of Theranos, and again, this is something to think about in terms of how organizations are constructed. Elizabeth Holmes herself owned ninety nine point seven percent of the voting shares. In the company. So this rather reduced the ability of the board or anyone else to bring in a course correction, even had they wished to do so. She was essentially liberated to take it as a to act as queen of her own country, if you like, to do exactly what she wanted to do with very minimal constraint uh, on her. So her promises became bigger, uh, which again is typical of type organizations. The means to achieve them became even more deceptive. And ultimately, it fell apart. I mean, for example, Theranos was, they were doing things like they were presenting financial projections to potential investors. Mm -hmm. They were 10 times greater than anything internally generated by the company. Mm -hmm. That's atrocious. That was deception. (laughs) But the employees were being deceived as well. They were told that they were part of a crusading mission to transform healthcare in the world. They were lied to about how close to development and launch Theranos' product was. And one of the deceptive things they did to to maintain that illusion was that they showed the results of various tests that were carried out on Theranos equipment, which had astonishingly high degrees of accuracy and ranged over a whole number of potential conditions. But here's the catch. They weren't actually carried out by Theranos machines. They They were carried out on other conventional, already existing machines that Theranos bought solely for the purpose of deceiving people about how far advanced down the road they were. Right. Yeah, it's amazing. And uh, so I'm, I, I guess I want to say, uh, as you were talking, you were talking about the CEO and, and media giving too much credit to them and everyone looking up to the leader, but how many people were hurt. But mm. they were also enablers or people who were assisting this process who are maybe just taking their doubts and suppressing them, mm-hmm. or, or you know, and and maybe they, you know, I'm sure they had NDAs or whatever legal instruments were being. Oh, used they made a lot of use of NDAs as well. But I want to mention another colleague of ours, Ira Chaliff, who mm-hmm. wrote a book, Courageous Followership, and his model talks about how no matter what organization we're in. We need to stay tuned into our values, our conscience, our common sense. And even if the leader is, you know, we might lose our our vested stock options or whatever, 
or we might worry that we might have a lawsuit or uh, et cetera, that we have an obligation to speak up mm -hmm. and to not be silent and allow this fraud to continue. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I, I think that's extremely important. And of course, as you know, one of the things, again, in cult type organizations is that that's exactly what is discouraged. But in terms of enabling followers, I think we have an interesting dynamic here that if you take the board, for example, none of them were either equipped to ask challenging questions or showed any real inclination to do so. There was one exception, an individual who had been a friend of Steve Jobs and had served on a senior level in Apple. He did begin to raise very crit critical questions, but he was forced out. He yeah. was forced to resign. And in his resignation letter, he requested that the reasons for his resignation be drawn to the attention of the rest of the board. They were not. Mm. So, you know, this was kind of typical of what happened, that people did raise questions. But as I say, the board didn't. And it does appear as if the overwhelming majority of the employees, for the overwhelming majority of Theranos's existence, suppressed any doubts that they might have had themselves. There were a handful of exceptions, as there always is, in these situations. But the, there were a couple of dynamics at work that limited it. One of them, I think, is quite simply that many of them thought that they were, as one of them put it, joining the rocket ship. That if this succeeded, <clears throat> they would become incalculably wealthy. Yeah. So therefore, go along with whatever. And that's a grave danger, that if you think that the organization has noble ends, then that can be used to excuse almost any unethical practices that you actually observe. And of yeah. course, the other thing that limited it as well was the simple realization that if you did dissent and raise questions, you were going to be threatened with legal action, followed by private investigators and maybe fired. Right. So that combination proved lethal. Yep. So I'll just add, you know, from my experience, the ends justifying the means mm -hmm. uh, psychological strategy usually ends badly. And what I learned when I got out of the Moonies cult is actually to think rather the means create the ends. Because in the Moonies, it's like, you need to lie, but we'll take over the world. It'll be a Garden of Eden, and then everything will be great. But if you're building it with lies, what you get is more lies. You don't get an ideal world magically. Yeah. No, you do not. And, and of course, this is a little problem in the corporate world. Apparently, there's a saying around Silicon Valley, fake it till you make it. And anybody looking for venture capital investment or anything else, by the nature of the process, they end up by exaggerating the potential of their idea, mm. how much money is likely to be made from it, and so on. And then once you make, once you actually succeed in getting some money and you start down this road, what do you do? Uh, in the paper that I wrote with my good friend Hugh Wilmot on Theranos, we described this as what we call entrepreneurial vertical. You're way up there, you've come so far, you've gone so far, and you suddenly realize that if you fall, you've got a long way down to go. And uh, the disgrace, the humiliation, the financial loss could be incredible. I mean, just think about the position Elizabeth Holmes was in. The front page of Fortune magazine, yeah. regularly interviewed in TV, filmed being interviewed by Bill Clinton, photographed with uh, uh, Joe Biden before he became president, um, put onto a task force on health care by Barack Obama and so on. The thought of losing all that by having to fess up to what had actually gone on must have been inconceivable to her.
inconceivable. Mm. So that necessitated doubling down on the deceptive tactics that were being followed. Yeah, exactly. But you, um, several things I want to say. One is power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But also just, you, you, you know, kind of sunk cost fallacy thinking, well, I've come this far, I'll just keep going. And a kind of wishful thinking, uh, this kind of thought stopping or the power of positive thinking. If you believe it 100% and don't have any doubts, somehow the universe is magically going to deliver. Well, that's one of the most pernicious ideas, I think, that is out there at the moment. I, I believe some book was published a few years ago in America that acquired a lot of attention called The Secret. And The Secret was that if you believe strongly enough, then whatever it is that you wish will come to you. Now, that isn't actually true. I mean, we know that isn't true. It doesn't really make any sense. But a lot of people, and maybe entrepreneurs might be specifically vulnerable to this, tend to believe that that is the case. So they push on and they push on. And it ultimately, as in this particular case, can lead to disaster. Yeah, and and does. I wanted to add, by the way, that I think uh, the, the other dynamic underneath all this, which facilitates this, is that at large corporations must be among the most undemocratic uh, institutions in our society. We think that democracy is a good thing pretty much everywhere. But somehow it seems that when we come to how businesses are constituted and built, that all goes out the window. <clears throat> and we think it's okay to have almost the equivalent of a dictatorship in place. Well, that doesn't work terribly well in the country. And I don't think it works terribly well inside businesses as well. The concentration of power in the hands of any individual is likely to lead to disaster. So I think we need to reimagine corporate governance. And we do need to find a way of involving people much more in the decision-making process yes. uh, within them in ways that we've scarcely begun to imagine thus far. Yeah, no, that's what I wanted to get into more of like, what are the features of a healthy corporation and such? But I want to start by just calling out the greed factor and the the notion of, you know, Ayn Rand cult of objectivism that said selfishness mm -hmm. is, is good and altruism is evil or, you know... Um, the, the the all that matters is my success and the hell mm -hmm. with the effects of it on everybody else. Yes. And what people are realizing is, you know, to have an ethical organization, you have to think about the big picture, not just the immediate, um, uh, you know, money income of that quarter or that year. But the downstream effects, and is it good for society? Is it good for your employees? But in the end, is it good for the world? And in the case of fossil fuel industries and fossil fuel countries that depend on this, um, it's going to extinguish our habitat. Mm -hmm. It is. And, you know, I, I know you and I both agree that climate change is potentially one of the most, no, it is the greatest threat facing the human species and, in fact, all biodiversity as we speak. <clears throat> but this issue about what corporations and companies are there for underpins all of this. Exactly. The, the Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Friedman, very famously in 1970, wrote that the only purpose of the corporation is to increase shareholder value. And he said anything else is just barefaced socialism. 
Now, that has become the endemic philosophy guiding the conduct of business, and I think for, for the bad over the last 30 or 40, 50 years. And one of the ways in which this is manifest, and it does relate almost, it does relate directly to Theranos, yeah. is that it's created a situation within <clears throat> large corporations where the people who run them are incentivized by stock options, by the ownership of shares. And therefore, if the value of shares goes up, they can become insanely wealthy. That does not encourage them to engage in wider ethical practices. Right. I recently read a, a book by um, uh, the, the guy who was the CEO of General Electric for 17 years. His mm. name escapes me now. Not, not Jack Welch. The guy, it's Jeff Emmelt. Jeff mm-hmm. Emmelt. <clears throat> and he was talking about the way in the 90s, General Electric fired hundreds of thousands of workers in America and they moved offshore to where labor was, at least for that time being, cheaper. And he made the astonishing to me statement in his book. He said, we just thought that if we could move things offshore and do it cheaper, it was our right as capitalists to do it. And we didn't. And he added this, we didn't think very much about the consequences. And that's astonishing. That's absolutely astonishing. Because what it means is that the only thing that matters is the wealth of a few individuals. The long-term future of the planet is neither here nor there, but the welfare also of employees becomes entirely secondary. And uh, so you have this amazing, amazing, ridiculous situation of within these large uh, companies, people having far too much power, far too much wealth, and demanding extraordinary cult-like levels of devotion from their members. So I read another interview a little while ago by a former chief, uh, senior executive at General Electric, actually. Uh-huh. And again, he said, and I found this astonishing and scary, he said, when I was a general, this is almost a verbatim quote that's seared into my memory, such was, I think, the weird nature of it. He said, when I was a general electric, we used to say to people, if you come and work here, you will have a bad marriage, but you won't know you're having it because you won't be at home often enough to find out. Wow. That was a level of commitment. That was uh, that was being required of people. There is something very scary, unethical, bizarre about that, and there's a need for a rebalancing of our society, of our institutions, of corporate governance to weed out these these ideas. I mean, because in any sane, rational world, if you're a multimillionaire but you don't know your children's names, you're on your sixth marriage, and you've worked eighty hours a week for thirty odd years, what on earth is the point of living? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I want to circle back and just say Milton Friedman was an on Rand devotee with the selfishness is good and altruism is evil. And my recollection is when when there was a big, you know, I forget a recession, something big happened. He said, I was wrong. He actually was forced to re- re- say, re- you know, to say my my frame was wrong. But but having said that, I also want to just uh, talk about a, a, a book that I was interviewed for, Dennis, um, years ago called The Culting of Brands. And the fellow who interviewed me basically said, I'm writing a business book and I, I'm fascinated to learn how cults create such loyalty in their followers because we want to create brands that has that level of loyalty. And I stupidly at the time didn't really stop and think, oh, so they're studying mind control cults to make corporations 
more like mind control cults. But that's <laughs> essentially what yes. this book was doing and people are doing. And we we really need to come back to what are our values as human beings, as you correctly said, you know, if you're not, if you don't know your own kids' names, if you miss their birthdays and, you know, their soccer games and you're working all the time, for what? Mm-hmm. You know, who has more, more zeros in their bank, you know, in their security portfolio? Or is it like, doing good to to help improve the 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 the, the conditions of others mm. and i just I, I just say one more thing if you don't mind that that richard dawkins who wrote the selfish gene apparently realized now he was wrong that in fact humans have succeeded the way we have because of cooperation mm. Mm. because we need each other mm. because we're better together because we have different perspectives, different skill sets, that we can actually be much more effective. Yeah. Funnily enough, I was just reading some of his writings on that very topic where he discusses the balance between, on the one hand, the competition that is there, but on the other hand, how the success of the human species is rooted in our parallel cooperative nature. And I do think you're right, that the way that corporations can utilize some of the same techniques that we're familiar with in cults is deeply disturbing to try and generate intense levels of commitment. But parallel with that, and this interest was sparked by studying Theranos, I'm midway through writing a paper with a colleague on the growing use of surveillance technology within the Uh, workplace as well. Uh, Now, that was ubiquitous at Theranos, cameras, all of the rest. But there's incredible technology now emerging which has the potential to ensure that people are monitored by their employers pretty much all the time. Mm. I read about one company where a year or two ago, for example, the employees had little microchips implanted into their arm, which they could use to pay for food in the cafeteria, open and close doors and so on. But of course, that also creates a digital record of their movements. Yes, it does. And at any particular point in time. There's technology emerging, which is now becoming more adept at reading people's emotions and their moods. And I think that's being employed in quite a few organizations to compel people to perform enthusiasm at all times. If you don't, it can be picked up upon by the technology that is surveilling you. So there's no real out. There's no real downtime. There's no real off time. You have to be there. You have to be on target. You have to be on message. You have to be totally committed at all times. That has very totalitarian implications actually for the future of work, especially if we don't challenge this idea that the only purpose of business is to make profits for shareholders. Because if that is, if we were to agree and accept that that was the only purpose of business, you can never have too much surveillance. You must have more. And there is no rationale for accepting that people should be able to tune in and tune out at various stages as well. It's total commitment all the time. It's a very dangerous inflection point that I think we are not at, actually. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And of course, we know in China, they are monitoring everything and putting up firewalls to block out any dissonant information from the regime. Mm. And they also have formal brainwashing programs where they send you know, Muslims and Christians and other people that re- they believe represents a threat to their total mm. control. Um, so, you know, 
I, these topics are so important. I'm going to ask you to imagine a group of CEOs of major corporations listening to this podcast. Like, talk about ethical corporate governance. Like, what are the checks and balances? What are the the pieces as a as an expert on leadership and business development yeah. that needs to really be put into practice? Well, I think there are a few. One is that I don't think any CEO should be in the position of Elizabeth Holmes and own so many of the voting shares. That's crazy. That creates unlimited power without any checks and balances. Mm -hmm. I think we also need to look at the boards of these companies now, the problem at Theranos was that nobody had any expertise in the area, so they couldn't challenge her. What we actually need is outside voices who aren't experts in that area, of course, because they can sometimes ask the questions that other people are too afraid to ask. But we also need experts yeah. here and there. So it is a question of very much a balance in that regard. And my own research on this suggests that most corporate boards are totally ineffective at offering correction and, and uh, challenge, even though that is pretty crucial in terms of what they should be doing. But then, and it goes back to Ira Chalice's work about courageous followers, we need to create mechanisms whereby people are empowered to speak up, where they are facilitated in offering dissent, where they have a voice in the decision-making process. Mm -hmm. And uh, frankly, I don't know quite how we get from here to there, it's a difficult one because the existing way of doing business has become so very deeply embedded. And uh, it has to change. It must change. Or the future of the human species will be severely compromised and in right. doubt. And even in a, a, from the point of view of, of people who are wealthy and run businesses, there must come a realization that present trends have led to, for example, the rise of Donald Trump and the uh, instability that that has unleashed. And that is the route to grotesque social disturbance and revolutionary movements of one kind or another. Fascism. danger. Yeah, well, I think we should increasingly consider using the word fascism actually in relation to Trump. It's very hard to see the difference between him as a person and the fascist movements of the, uh, of the past. But we know where that all leads. We know right. where that all leads. And unless businesses want to be complicit in that and consumed in the flames... They have right. to change the way they work. Right. So my fantasy, uh, Dr. Turish, it, with CEOs is that they have an intervention where they're urged to take a time out from their busy schedules where they get away, unplug, and they sit down with a group of experts who've studied healthy organizations like yourself and myself and challenge some of the belief systems they've incorporated, perhaps on Randy and objectivism or whatever, or that they think, you know, that, well, the sun's going to go extinct anyway, so we have to go to Mars, or beliefs that are, you know, well, Armageddon's coming any minute, Jesus is coming back, so we don't need to care about sustainability of the rainforests or something, mm. where we can we can do an intervention and explain undue influence and 
ask them to come back to their bodies and here and now and really look objectively at what's the point, you know? At, at the point you have a billion dollars, why do you need a two billion and four billion and 19 billion other mm. than your ego? Mm. And you get to maybe have, you know, the bulletproof glass office building and the private jet. Mm. But so what? Mm. I know, I mean, it, it, it does seem a little bit ludicrous. And we need to create an environment where people interrogate those assumptions a little bit more and recognize that there comes a point when enough is enough. And beyond that point, it becomes destructive to the individual as well. It is my sincere impression that the overwhelming majority of the people in that super rich elite club are not happy people. Yeah. Um, we, we know this program, which I must admit I haven't watched, but I've read about it, Succession, uh -huh. which has taken the world by storm about this media dynasty, riven with conflict, with everybody fighting each other all the time, obsessed by getting ahead and by putting someone else down. It's not a recipe for a constructive or a desirable kind of life and it needs to be challenged but i also think that the main challenge probably is going to have to come from not the ceos themselves ultimately but from wider society we can put in place regulations restrictions changes to corporate governance by law and the like that force a radically different approach and you know there are countries there are places like scandinavia for example we're somewhat different models of doing business than we find in the United States and increasingly in the UK, where, where those other types of models exist. There are varieties of yeah. capitalism, to put it like that, and we need to study them. And, and the social movements are developing that will force a challenge one way or the other, because people have already shown <clears throat> that they're simply not prepared to put up with this indefinitely. Yeah. And yeah. I think that if the techniques of control and influence in business that we have been discussing, like, for example, the use of this, the growing use of this surveillance technology, if that does intensify, then people are going to get really angry and upset about that and find creative ways of resisting it and dismantling it. Because none of us likes being under intense surveillance and observation all the time. Mm. That is the trajectory which I think many businesses are increasingly on. And it's one that I think will lead to massive resistance from yeah. individuals, citizens, political parties, trade unions, and even concerned shareholders in the future. Yeah, I'm hope I'm hoping that's the case. Although um, the corporations hire lobbyists here in the U.S. that co-opt politicians, who then have to vote to make sure regulations aren't put into place. Yeah. And until we can try to, you know, restore the checks and balances and put laws back into place and mm -hmm. have enforcement people like the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service. Um, so it is, um, but I'm going to mention two I, more ideas that I have um, to this project to maybe try to re reimagine uh, a future that's actually sustainable. First is young people, mm. particularly children who are heirs to these billionaires 
if they get educated, if they understand and aren't just yelling at their father or mother, but actually think of it strategically as I need to have a series of conversations or I need to sit with my parents and show them a video and have a conversation about it. For example, I know there's a documentary about Elizabeth Holmes. Mm. You know, dad, tell me how your corporation doesn't do the things that, you know, Elizabeth Holmes did. So activating strategically the children and the heirs of these, these mm. very, very powerful families. The other thing is just generic former members like myself, and I think you you told me, me you were involved with a political cult way yeah, back when. Yeah, I spent when. Uh, 11 years in what I now regard as a left-wing political cult back in the mid-70s to mid-1980s. Yeah, and, and instead of what's happening currently, which is people walking around saying only weak, stupid people get into cults, you know, uh, and blame them, realizing the human mind is adaptable, we can be lied to, we can be co-opted by social psychology, etc. The more former members start sharing their stories, it will normalize and destigmatize the fact that it, good people can be taken advantage of and made to do really things that are against their best interest or their core values. Um, that can create a global conversation against authoritarian cults. Absolutely. And I think a crucial part of that that hasn't been discussed enough in the past is that we need to extend that understanding to corporations. We need to be uh, aware that there is something not quite right about the amount of power that is concentrated in the hands of a few people. Yes. We have to also recognize Elizabeth Holmes is a great example <clears throat> that when people tell us they've got a wonderful ideology and they're doing something for the good of humanity, well, maybe they are, but look closely. Mm. Make sure that they are indeed doing what they say they are doing. If they say we're doing something great for humanity, and as a result of that, you have to invest all of your time, all of your energies, all of your spiritual energies, your psychic energies, and yes. we are trying to create as a cause then again, we need to be very careful and very suspicious. Because things like work are obviously very important, but they're only one part of life. And the problem with these high-activity corporate organizations, including things like General Electric and the example of marriage that I gave earlier, is that yeah. they're all trying to blur the boundaries between our private lives and our working lives. They're trying to make sure that we don't have any feelings or emotions or behaviors that aren't there to serve anything other than the corporate purpose. That's intrinsically very, very dangerous. We've gone too far down that road. I want us to step back from it. Yeah, exactly. And it encourages conformity to the corporate mm. identity, but mm. it doesn't encourage creativity and innovation mm. and sustainability because ultimately people's bodies start to break down from the yeah, lack absolutely. of sleep and proper mm. exercise. The other thing that we now know from neuroscience categorically is quality work doesn't depend on working many hours. In fact, you need yes. to take breaks and you need to have time to do deep reflection <laughs> regularly. Um, and that, that challenges the notion of, you know, I'm working 80 hours a week, therefore I'm a good person 
I'm mm -hmm. showing my dedication. Mm -hmm. Work work 40 or less hours a week, and, yeah. and maybe you'll get more done. Yes, I mean, the expectations that many corporations are putting on their people now are completely crazy and insane. And um, some corporations, and again, if we go back to General Electric, Jack Welch pioneered this approach where uh, it's become less common, thankfully, but he brought in a system where the employees were divided into three categories every year. There was the people at the top who were said, you're brilliant, you're successful, here are more awards. There were the people in the middle who were told, you're doing okay, but you need to do better. And then there was the bottom 10% who, who were told, you're failing and we're getting rid of you. And that would happen year upon year upon year. Now imagine the environment that that would create. Imagine the pressure towards conformity that it would unleash. Imagine the way it would pit people against people. And imagine the way it would prevent any employee from challenging their boss. <clears throat> because you're challenging the person who can make the decision at the end of the year that you're part of this bottom 10%. Um, the, these types of crazy ideas are there not to improve the health of society or of organizations or of individuals, but to maintain the control of an overprivileged elite. And I think we need to call them out for what they are and find ways of making sure that they are about abolished. Yep. I couldn't agree more. And uh, holding corporations accountable for the harm they cause, especially mm -hmm. technology firms. Uh, you know, as recently as this morning, there was a thing about Facebook lying about about uh, the harm that they mm -hmm. were doing to young people psychologically. Yeah, I mean, I know there is this view, um, maybe especially in America, that you, you simply need less regulation and let the free market run uh, without any external hindrance or oversight at all. I think events have shown that that's profoundly mistaken. A totally state-run economy would obviously be a horrible totalitarian nightmare, but there's a balance to be struck. Right. And in the US, and over here in the UK, I think it's the same, we've gone too far down the road of limiting regulation of, uh, of, of taking the powers of the state to weakening them to such an extent that we have corporations to a large extent that are out of control in too many sectors. <clears throat> so that's a conversation for society to have. And we need a political system that ensures that something can be done about it. Yeah. Which and that's is also a challenge. That is that is a challenge, especially in the United States, where for 50 years they've been systematically dismantled a lot of the regulations and the checks and balances and the ethical mm. Uh, uh, guidelines and such, and um, you know, I'm 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 a I'm a hopeful person. Ultimately, that we're going to pull this out, but um, we need all hands on deck. And I worry about so many people getting so hopeless that they just binge watch movies or they mm -hmm. video game and say. You know, there's nothing I can do when, in fact, mm. we know the power of the ripple effect. If a Absolutely. lot of people do a little bit, it can have a dramatic uh, effect. You know, I mean, it's, it's sensible to have a historical perspective on this. If we were having a discussion in the 1930s or even the mid-1940s, imagine what we would have thought. Imagine, And people did think that it was only a matter of time until we had a third world war and that fascism was going to spread all over the world and so on. 
Well, that changed then, and we can change it now. And it's right. our absolute obligation to the next generation to do what we can to do so. Yep. And to be able to go to sleep at night knowing we did some good mm -hmm. today to Absolutely. improve things. Yeah. And and uh, and and the importance of realizing we do have power, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and 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 step by step, uh, using our wisdom, using our intelligence, and and not over over relying on technology who's going to be invented that's going to solve the the climate change problem magically overnight. I mean, I see some innovative ideas. But we're really running out of time in terms of the the, the critical effects. Yeah, um, I agree on, on, on things. And uh, so um, I want to organize an intervention with you and Ira Chaloff and John Atak and other of my colleagues. Sit down with even you know three or four billionaires who have incredible power, and have a real conversation. Like what what can we do? That's going that to really terrific. yeah. I mean, we need to start thinking big, mm -hmm. and not just complain that wealthy people want to make more money, mm -hmm. but actually find those people who have a conscience, who care mm -hmm. about their children and their grandkids, mm -hmm. and who don't want them to be yelling, you know, from their grave to their graves. You know, mm -hmm. what did you do? Why did you do this? You know, I, I worry sometimes that the super wealthy imagine that their wealth will cushion them and their immediate families from all of this. Yeah, and it might to a limited extent, but outside that gate, that gated park where you live, there's a world falling apart, right. and it will be very nice to be able to step into it and find it in a healthy state. Otherwise, the psychic effects, even for the super wealthy, are likely to be bad. Yeah. And and uh, Douglas Rushkoff wrote a book about about his experience being summoned by some billionaires. Like, you know, what do you recommend going forward? And their thinking was exactly the gated community thing that will just cushion. And then apparently one of the wealthy people said, well, what do we do to protect ourselves from our guards that we hire to guard the gated compounds, and he said, treat them really well. <laughs> but that reminds me that, you know, autocratic totalitarian political leaders have a high fatality rate because somebody else wants that rule. Somebody else is prepared to do whatever to remove you from your position of prominence and preeminence. A reading about people like Joseph Stalin, he lived his life in perpetual fear of assassination. For example, now he wants to live like that. There's got to be a Putin does ah, currently means. for sure. Absolutely, he keeps getting rid of the the, the people around him because he's yeah. paranoid. Mm, totally, yeah. well, and that's part of the danger, of course. That the more power you have, the more paranoid you become, and to an extent, rightly, there yeah. are reasons for being paranoid when you have so much power and wealth and influence, and when you're doing things with it that are against the interests of the wider society in which you live. Exactly. No, you said it so well. Dr. Dennis Turish, uh, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Sussex Business School. Thank you for your research. Thank you for your contributions. 
um, let's organize an intervention and raise people's consciousness to how to make sustainable business organizations that are really going to encourage the best of our employees and the public and the public good. Sounds great, Steve. And before we finish, I'd like to remind anybody listening that if they want a copy of that book on the age, send me an email and I'll give you a PDF. I, also, I highly recommend it. Thank you, Steve. It's worth reading because mm. there, cults aren't just religious cults. There are political yeah. authoritarian cults. Thank you and again, Dr. Anthuranos, by the way, as well, I've published a blog on it on the website of the International Leadership Association. Oh. Look it up if anybody wants to read more. The forthcoming academic paper on it, again, if anybody wants a copy, send me an email and I'll forward it. Right. So what's going to happen after this interview is we're going to transcribe it, write a blog, and then we'll embed the video and we'll add all those links so people can come to freedomofmind.com uh, and get all of access to your information and how to, how to learn more. Sounds good. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you so much. That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT and join our online community at IGOTOUT.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.